You're listening to The American Scald, a musicology podcast. If you came to a Scandinavian music podcast looking for trolls, giants, vikings, mountains, fjords, witchcraft, and fairy tales, then your time has finally come. And it only took until the third episode. I did tell you to be patient. And to be honest with you, that's why I'm here too. If you know me, then this will be no surprise. And if you only know me through this podcast, then you will come to know this one thing very quickly. I am a huge, unapologetic dork. I was raised on a spoon-fed diet of Tolkien, Elder Scrolls, Warcraft, Zelda, and of course, heavy metal. And it's hard to go through any of these artistic mediums without stepping on something Scandinavian. I mean, come on, let's be realistic. With the current state of pop culture, you can pick up a rock, throw it in any direction, and it's going to hit a caricature of a Viking. So let's address what Romanticism and the Romantic Era is, because it's going to be the backbone of the next ten or so episodes. Romanticism, like most artistic changes, were primarily a reaction to what came before it, in this case, Classicism. In classical music, this means the era, not the big genre we call classical music today, Things were set by logic and symmetry. Melody in the right hand, harmony in the left hand. Melodies are in even four or eight measures long that shall only be repeated in specific keys that are symmetrical to the original key, etc. Then, the classical era itself was a reaction to the Baroque era, where countless melodies were woven throughout the individual voices through most of the piece, creating an aural gothic cathedral, if you will, as the Baroque music is often compared to the architecture of the time as well. So with Romanticism reacting to the old, cold, logical calculations of the classical era, Romanticism put what makes us human, the part of being human that the sciences can't explain, at the center of our art. Love, our connection to the natural world, our spirituality, the supernatural, all of these things sit at the core of the Romantic aesthetic. In other words, Romantic art was not interested in explaining, but expressing that shared human experience that can't be conveyed through words alone. The feeling of watching the sunset, or reaching the top of a mountain, or even your own national heritage and your pride, as is especially the case with Norway. Another trend of Romanticism that sends this point home is the growing relationship between music and literature, both literally and philosophically. Throughout the 19th century, music and literature started to influence, inspire, and nourish one another, be it composers and poets directly influencing each other, or compositions being influenced by poems. This subject of the relationship between music and literature will come up quite a few times throughout this podcast, but just know that this relationship is part of what made the Romantic era start to seem more dramatic, but also more grounded in expression of the self. It's in this era, the era of myths, folktales, enchantment with the natural world, and of course national pride and expression is, as you might guess, where Norway started to come into its own with artistic expression. So enough with the build-up. Who was Norway's first romanticist in music? Who is the one who took the first steps into bringing Norwegian folklore, culture, and life onto a concert stage previously reserved for the higher art forms of a more sophisticated Central Europe? Well, if you read the title of the episode, you would know the answer, and that would be one man named Valdemar Thrain. Valdemar Thrain was born in 1790 in Christiania, now called Oslo. We'll get to that later. He was an exceptionally talented man born into a musical family in which every child played multiple instruments. Valdemar excelled above the rest, however, especially in the violin. Eventually, he was sent to study in Paris in his 20s and came back to Norway invigorated by the musical life of the more cosmopolitan French city, 
This is, by the way, a trend we will see time and time again with Norwegian composers, where they go off to a foreign, more modern city and come back to Norway to share what they've experienced. But when Valdemar Thrain came back, he not only came back as a more talented conductor, violinist, and composer, but he came back wanting to bring this romanticism to Norway. And this trip resulted in his universally loved and historically significant work, Fjell de Venturet, which arguably changed Norway forever. So the primary piece of interest from this musical drama, or Singspiel as it's also called, was a little number called Ogot's Fjeld Song, translated to Ogot's Mountain Song, and it was the first of its kind to be on a concert stage in Norway. But before we talk about why this song sung by a herd girl over simple accompaniment was so impactful, we need to be on the same page about where Norwegian culture stood within Norway itself at this time. So because of oil money, no one really thinks of Norway as an oppressed nation nowadays. But in reality, from the 15th to the 19th centuries, Norway was owned by Denmark. They had to speak Danish in professional and academic life, and their culture was brought to them by Denmark, especially in Christiania, the seat of Danish power within Norway. So, most public art performances, though the first public theaters were only around for about 20 years at this point, were more cosmopolitan symphonies, operas, and dramas from Central and Western Europe. In other words, Norwegians were not seeing Norwegian life held to any high regard and they certainly weren't seeing Norwegian life represented on their own concert stages. What's even more important is what was going on politically in Norway in 1824, when this piece premiered. Simply put, the premiere of Thrain's work couldn't have been more perfectly timed, for that 400 years Denmark ruled Norway for ended only 10 years earlier in 1814. And that's a story that needs to be told to understand why the rest of the 19th century plays out the way it does. So, Denmark sided with Napoleon in the Napoleonic Wars. Womp womp. So when Napoleon's empire failed, Denmark had to pay the price to its main adversary of Sweden once the war was over in the Treaty of Kiel. There were many terms in the Treaty of Kiel, but most importantly, Sweden wanted Norway. Norway had more valuable port, labor, and tons of natural resources that they could use to their advantage, but that would also give Sweden total control over the Scandinavian peninsula. But in my absolute favorite most petty geopolitical move in all of European history, Denmark granted Norway sovereignty just before signing the treaty because then Norway was no longer Denmark's to give away. I mean, let's give them credit. That was an absolutely incredible move, and I applaud them for it. So tasting freedom for the first time in over 400 years, Norwegians finally realized that just because they always had been subjects to greater powers, at least in recent memory, that didn't mean they always had to be. Remember that history was viewed differently in 1800 than it is today. 400 years was practically forever. But a small glimpse of hope shined through to the Norwegians and they actually managed to cobble together a constitution modeled after the American and the French, and elected a king in only a matter of months. And this constitution is still in effect today, making it one of the oldest constitutions in the world. However, Sweden wasn't just going to sit idly by and let their spoils of war get away from them, and Norway ultimately surrendered after military skirmishes and more painfully blockades, as Sweden was effectively starving out Norway. As we will learn in the Swedish series, Sweden was one hell of a military power at this point that Norway just couldn't ever hope to stand up to. Even though in the end, Sweden ended up owning Norway while giving Norway something resembling autonomy, for the first time in memorable history, Norwegians tasted freedom, and it began a century-long campaign for true sovereignty. This fight manifested itself most potently through the arts, especially music and literature in a movement that authors and composers alike called Norwegianism in which Fjeldeventuret serves as one of the pioneering works of this movement. So Fjeldeventuret, this play, musical drama, singspiel, whatever you want to call it, premiering in 1824 was just 10 years after Norway tasted independence for just a few months. In those 10 years, the most independence-minded Norwegians, such as Valdemar Thrain, 
were hungry to make independence permanent by trying to win over the hearts and minds of their fellow Norwegians who were either apathetic or precariously perched on the fence. It also isn't a coincidence that music such as this, a more socially democratic music written for the common man and woman rather than the wealthy few, appeared in the first decades of the 1800s. Remember that possession of Stadsmusikant, the government musician who had exclusive rights to all public music performance within his territory, people like Johann Daniel Berlin? That position was abolished in the year 1800, meaning that the opportunity to create music was now open to anyone bold enough to seize it. Now imagine being a Norwegian on the fence about whether or not Norway can truly become independent. You plan a night on the town, and when it finally comes around you sit down to see this new play by a Norwegian composer and a Norwegian playwright, but you're expecting to see something in the style of a Mozart opera or a Haydn symphony, as would have been the well-established norm for background music of plays. But when the overture plays and the curtains open up, the backdrop isn't of some faraway grand land like Greece or France, but of your home. There are mountains, fjords, pine trees, goats, and music you hear emulates your own folk music so well that, as is the case of Ogot's Fjeld song, the music eventually became part of the actual folk repertoire. It would have been like nothing you had ever seen before, and you might have felt deeply moved when seeing your own culture, heritage, and nation being presented on a stage previously reserved for the high arts of a more rich and powerful nation. So what exactly was so Norwegian about Fjeldeventure? Well, pretty much everything, which is a big step up from nothing, which was the Norman Christiania. The tableaus were beautiful backdrops of Norwegian landscape signifiers I mentioned like fjords, mountains, and goats. The script was in that Dano-Norwegian hybrid in a time when Norwegian fine art and literature had to be in Danish, and the story followed the lives of pastoral Norwegian figures, most notably the Seder girls. We will come to know Seder girls very well over the next few episodes, as they become pretty much the iconic mascots of Norwegian culture throughout the century. Seder girls are purely Norwegian pastoral figures who serve a pretty fascinating purpose in rural society. In Norway, you can probably guess that there isn't much good pasture. Look, I know this isn't an agricultural podcast, but bear with me here. So the most effective way to pasture animals in Norway is to move them up into the highlands in the summer to save the pasture closer to home for the colder months. The Seder girls were herd women tasked with guiding and taking care of that herd high up into the mountaintops, keeping them safe from predators, and making sure they all stayed close by. For the summer, the Seder girl would stay in a Seder, from which they get their name, which is a mountaintop cabin. But what does this have to do with the music? Two things. First is that these Seder girls had herding calls called Luck, which you may have heard on the internet before. They're all over YouTube and Instagram, with the women singing those high-pitched calls to a herd of cows across the fence. These cow calls were lyrical, high-pitched trilling calls which were used to guide and lead herds. And these locks were absolutely enchanting to romantics, similar to hunting horn calls in German romanticism. So these locks were used in Norwegian music to signify pastoral Norwegian life. And they were quite adored by audiences, because something to keep in mind is that escapism was a big thing for romantics. The growing middle class was holed up in cities and wanted to forget about their complicated, sometimes depressing urban lifestyles when they went to concerts. So pastoral figures and folk music were used extensively to remind the audiences of a supposed better time when life was simpler. 
something I'm sure we all can relate to. There's another not-so-complicated reason satyr girls were so popular among composers and writers. These herd girls were Norwegian figures that were literally independence incarnate, something incredibly important for a nation searching for independence. An individual driving her herd up into the mountaintop so she can live independent from society in a cabin looking down upon the world below? You simply can't get more romantic or Norwegian than a satyr girl, the true symbol of self-reliance, and luckily for composers, these satyr girls were intertwined with traditional Norwegian folksong. So, as you may guess, Ogot's field song is being sung by Ogot, a satyr girl character in the play, which is the very reason this song sounds less like your typical art song and more like a folk song. The vocal part is simple, like a lament or a lullaby, and it's supported by an incredibly simple yet rich accompaniment in the pit orchestra. Writing like what you hear in this piece, in the harp and oboe, would have been seen as borderline pedantic for someone like Mozart. But as the harp is imitating a lyre, and the oboe is imitating a bookahorn or a cowhorn, the music is less about the compositional content, and far more about the national and cultural folk signifiers and their meaning, again unheard of in musical dramas in Norway before Field of Enturet. This is significant because here we see for the first time a Norwegian composer peeling off from the conventions and expectations surrounding what theater music should be like, according to Central and Western Europe, and instead writing it in a distinctly Norwegian idiom that Norwegians can relate to, another step towards cultural independence. So suffice it to say, Norwegians loved this play, to the point where it ignited what we call a cultural awakening, in which the people of a nation become more aware, appreciative, and proud of their own heritage and culture. With Thrain's Field of Enturet, Norwegians were finally being shown that their culture was unique, that it was beautiful, and that it meant something. Field of Enturet effectively brought romanticism to Norway, and it came with an unstoppable momentum. In Norwegian historian Karen Larsen's words, quote, It was as if a dam had burst. The whole Norwegian folk culture, the rich heritage of all manner of folklore, gushed forth with a force which carried everyone along. And this is clearly heard in Ogotsfjeld's song, where it's uncertain which part is folk song and which part is art song. In fact, Valdemar Thrain so effectively embodied the atmosphere and spirit of folk song that this piece has actually been incorporated into Norwegian folk repertoire today, much like Schubert's Lindenbaum. Now, Fjeldaventuret is no doubt a shining example of early Norwegian nationalism expressed through art. But it wasn't the only instance. In fact, the fledgling Norwegian government itself became so wrapped up in Norwegianism, it started recruiting academics from all creative fields to take up the study and research of Norwegian folk art, music, and literature, just as Germany did with the Brothers Grimm and their fairy tales. Norway recruited Asbjørnsen and Mo for their Norwegian fairy tales, but with music, they recruited a man named Ludwig Matthias Lindemann to go into the countryside and collect as many folk melodies as he could find. Here we can already see music and literature working together to form a national identity. Lindemann was an organist, composer, and folk music collector from a family of German immigrants. He spent his whole life working as the organist and music director for Varfrelse's Kirche in Christiania, and he also dedicated his life to teaching and singing church music at the university. This was a large chunk of his legacy as well, as he left a legacy of inflammatory newspaper publications denouncing the sorry state of church music in Christiania, where he would often spar with Otto Winterhelm a composer we will be talking about in the coming weeks. 
So as I mentioned, among all of this, he was also given government grants to go and learn, collect, and preserve Norwegian folk music. He went all around Western and Southern Norway learning the folk melodies and songs of the various villages and communities for the purpose of this idea of reclaiming a perceived lost history in the shadow of Danish rule and cultural hegemony. During this time, Lindemann would collect over a thousand melodies notated and harmonized for use in art music. These transcriptions did come with flaws, however, as Lindemann was far less concerned with authenticity and more concerned with writing down the melody in a way that was easy for him to harmonize with classical music theory. And of course, these were adapted for piano, which when you're taking melodies from Langelex, Bukehorn, Seljaflutes, and Locksingers, you're going to miss some core elements of what makes that music unique just by virtue of putting it on a piano, as Grieg would make his call to action a few decades later. We'll be talking more about the flaws of Lindemann's collection in the future, especially in the context of Grieg's work. But for now, what matters is that he was the first to take an interest in traveling Norway to collect and archive its many unique melodies for academic purposes, even if they weren't exactly authentically notated. Lindemann's work, however, would not be what it was without two young women, named Olea Kröger and Camilla Kollet, two folk musicians from Western Norway who were, in fact, Lindemann's primary informants of folk song and melody, predictably with very little credit to their names at the time. But we'll save all that for the next episode, when we learn about these two unsung women of early Norwegian nationalism. And so friends, that wraps up this week's episode of the American Scalds Musicology Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, be sure to leave a review, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast platform of choice, or leave a tip on my website theamericanscald.com as I do all of this for free. I'm currently sitting at 7 5-star reviews on the Apple Podcast platform, and I'd love to see that number hit 10 reviews. Of any value, I want them to be genuine. But if you've been enjoying this podcast so far, five stars helps out a lot with grabbing people's attention. Remember, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube under The American Scald, and if you find yourself becoming enchanted with Nordic art music, be sure to join the hundreds of us over on r slash Nordic Sound subreddit. So, as always, thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The American Scald, a musicology podcast. (laughs) 